Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a bi-weekly story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, which is a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. So come sit with us in the honeyed light among the ripe pomegranates in Calliope's sanctuary where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come, lean against the sun-warmed stones with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. Music is by Yanis Linardakis. And podcast sound editing is by Simon Lindstedt. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Calliope's Sanctum. This is the Beltane season edition or episode Um, And the story that was really pressing me to be read this time is my story, The Pythia. And again, it's from my collection, Our Lady of the Dark Country, which was published in January 2018. So this story, I'm not going to give too much away of the details of the mythic context because I will give away the story. Um... However, I will say, so the Pythia is a telling of the takeover of Apollo, the god Apollo, at the Oracle of Delphi, which was the most famous oracle in Greece in the classical era and was considered the so-called center of the world with this omphalos, the omphalos stone, which was said to be the navel of the world. There were many Omphalos stones at holy places, which I always love, and I explore that idea a little bit in the story, this idea that there are as many centers of the world as there are holy places, which is many, many, many. So Delphi was the very famous oracle in classical Greece and centered originally in a cave, a dreaming cave, and is famous for the python in the earth that the Pythia, the priestess, would go into a trance to speak to. And um, some studies suggest that, research suggests that there was actually a um, crack in the earth, that a vent in the earth because Delphi was located on a fault line. And so some gases were released from the earth that caused vision um, of the priestess who would descend into the lower chamber to speak her prophecies, to receive her prophecies. Um, whatever the case, it was certainly a holy place geologically as well as energetically, which of course is the same thing. And so originally 
the priestess spoke to the great serpent, the great primordial serpent in the earth. And in the classical era, it was said that Apollo was the god that spoke through the priestesses at Delphi, which is a very interesting and challenging for me shift from the Python to Apollo and speaks very much, in my opinion, to the takeover of Hellenic um, kind of solar deities, Apollo, of course, being the god of the sun and order and reason and logic and song, which is interesting. So this story is a telling from the Pythia's point of view, one of the Pythia's, um, the Pythia who was the Pythia in my imagination when Apollo came. And this is the story of that moment, of that takeover. And I think this is an important story to tell again right now of the time when those solar deities of, of linear intellectual logic, so to speak, took over deep chthonic serpentine knowing of the dark and the earth. And like Rhea Sylvia, the story that I shared was a couple months ago now, this one really came through almost in one go, which is always a gift when that happens. And a special experience as the writer to step back and, and yeah, just feel like, wow, who just wrote that? <laughs> so I hope you enjoy And I hope that there is some hope brought through this story, even in the sorrow told. And I also hope that this season, this Beltane time, is bringing peace and blossoming into your lives. The Pythia. I saw... A terrible vision, the day before the one they call Apollo came. I saw what was inconceivable then, in the days of innocence, when a woman's body was as holy and whole as the saffron crocus, and her sons, beloved for their generosity, their way with animals, their lithe speed in foot races, and not for their cleverness at war. In that vision, I saw beyond conquest, far beyond, to another kind of brokenness. I saw into the desolation of a terrible forgetting, when even the names were dead, and the oracle a ruin visited but not believed. To be conquered is one thing. To be silenced, until the silence itself is forgotten, is to be left without the dark blessing of rebirth that lives at the center of the world. But there are daughters and sons coming who need the story of what silenced us, and how. So I will tell it from the beginning. When I was a girl, I believed that our Omphalos, our mountain cave and the python within, was the center of the world. So I was taught. But in the autumn of my third season as a young priestess at Delphi, my cousin went north into the mountains of Epirus, where the goats are shaggier, to visit the oak oracle of Dodona with her mother. When she came home, she said it was the same there. It seems the world has many centers, she said, when she saw me at harvest time while we peeled the quince for my mother's sweet dessert. I was a little horrified by this seeming blasphemy, so later I thought it over. I sat under the old olives in my father's orchard, thinking, 
And when I returned to Delphi, I walked among the laurels and listened to their whispering. Troubled still, at last I asked the Pythia, our great Sibyl, while we were all out in the late autumn heat gathering the olives into nets. The Pythia was always among us working at the daily tasks of life around the sanctuary and the dreaming caves, save at the times of prophecy. There was little hierarchy except then, when the python in the earth called to the Pythia in the silence of her mind that the ground was breathing, that an oracle was ripe. Then she was our Sibyl, our mother, and we served her as such. Out under the olives she smiled when I asked my question. The earth has only one true center, she replied, sitting up from the net, brushing a leaf and a spider from her gray hair. And that center no human will ever visit, for it is far, far underground, all fire and darkness. I have seen it in my trances, but never with our bodies could we go there. But love makes other kinds of centers. Anywhere enough love comes together, something whole is made, and all whole things have centers. She laughed at my empty look. Another way put, child, is that anywhere they speak a different language or dialect, there is a different center of the world, a different holy mountain or stone or snake. And yet, it is the same inside, in essence, invisibly, with a root straight down to the middle of her, the molten core that we may only see in spirit. No better? Ah, it's just as well. A question after all, is a sacred thing with its own center to be sought. She patted my hand and pushed up to her feet. Now, the oil, she said. We had our own great stone olive press at Delphi. It looked like an altar, but it was just for crushing out the oil. We gathered it from there into fine-necked urns as big as I, which we stored in the cool of an underground chamber, free to eat as much as we pleased. Sometimes when the moon was dark and my body or my mind weary, I liked to eat a spoonful of oil and then another of honey from our hives. After that, nothing in the world seemed too bad, for I was made of the gold of bees and of olive trees. I was fifteen the autumn my cousin went to Dodona, and I began to consider that the world might be bigger than our holy mountain sanctuary. I discovered other centers that year, as the autumn rains filled the earth and the crocuses began to bloom beside the pink tongues of the cyclamen. I had a particular friend among the other girls. Celine, she was called, much taller than I and more beautiful. We were inseparable then. Our young bodies loved to be near one another, touching. Her breasts were fuller than mine, and I was often looking at them. One day, while we were down the mountain looking for mushrooms, she put my hands on them and kissed me. Let's practice together, she said, and her breath was warm. She knew more of her body already than I did and showed me the root of mine with her lovely, hot hands. For a while after that, we slipped away often together between our duties. During those times, I began to understand how a body might dissolve into something greater, a part of the trees, the red earth, the limestone cliffs. I think Celine only ever loved women her whole life long, but I also loved a man. I had a son by him and raised the boy as a child of Delphi, as many did in those times. My son's father was a goat herd, 
who'd brought us fresh milk up the mountain track from his family's holding a mile below since he himself was a boy. He was like a gatekeeper to us, though in those days no one would dare defile the oracle, much less the women who kept it. Still, our Pythia taught us, it is good to make people a little afraid, to make sure they come only when they really need to, and not for trifles. For it is no small thing on body or mind to ask counsel of the python or dreams from the cave. But my Aristus could do little against the men of Apollo, who came on the backs of beautiful, long-necked creatures we had never seen, with round, shining hooves and long tails, like donkeys, but much finer and larger. Horses, they were called. Their hooves rang on the mountain stones. By the time Apollo and his men and their horses came, I was the Pythia of Delphi. Our old mother, the one who had been Sybil since I was a girl, had died, and I at thirty was her successor, though there were older women who envied me the position. But she had been training me for many years. By then, I was a mother, my son a boy of nine, raised among the women of Delphi and the mountain shepherds, his father's people. Only once or twice each month did the earth begin her exhalations, the sweet breathing of the python which preceded prophecy. Then I would prepare myself for three days entire, abstaining from sexual pleasure, from all food save oil, honey, and clear spring water. I bathed in the deep spring and in the smoke of laurel leaves and sat with my mind empty, high up the mountain for a day and a night. Only then did I descend. My Aristus always knew the day and brought his finest goat for the sacrifice, the one most black of fur. He came no further than the sanctuary's mouth, and one of the girls took the goat from him, bleeding on its leather lead, and soothed and praised it until it was calm. Then a pitcher of cold spring water was poured over the goat's body. If he shivered, the time for the oracle was right, and I bowed while his blood was given to the dark ground, and then descended with laurel, barley, and spring water in my hands to sit on the tripod over the chasm in the stone and call up the python. If he did not shiver, which happened very rarely, it was not safe within. The earth's breath, too strong for a human to breathe, even a trained Pythia, and I returned the following day to try again. During the times of prophecy, Selene took our son and looked after him, and he grew to be a fine young lad among the women, spoiled by their doting and a little wild, but always kind like his father, and good with plants and animals. He liked to work in the gardens on the terraces below the sanctuary where we grew our food. He loved the blue flax in summer, the smell of the silver wormwood, the faces of the bean flowers as they climbed, the vines of the half-wild grapes from which we made a simple mountain wine. Besides those days of prophecy, which for me were intensely bright and dark both for body and for mind, my life and the lives of my priestesses was gentle and slow there on the mountain, the center of our world. Much of our time was taken up with the daily things of life, the spinning and weaving of our cloth, the gathering and tending of plants for our meals, the shaping of clay for our libations, the mixing of herbs for incense and medicine. In and out we wove the pleasure of each thing, 
This was how the Pythia before me taught us, and the one before her. For every holy cone of smoke we shaped, we made an oil of thyme and saffron for our skin, to smooth on in the hot dawn sun of summer. In autumn, we went down the mountain a little way for acorns. The shepherds joined us, and there was always much flirting and chasing and games and laughter, and a fire with a goat or a deer on it, rough wine and the many stars at nightfall through the trees. We worked hard but rested often in summer to swim or to tell an old story in winter. The night before Apollo's men came, I emerged from the oracle deeply troubled by what I had seen. Unable to rest or even to ease out of the trance of earth for many hours, not until the moon had set and it was almost day again. I should have gone to Aristus and asked to be held there in his bed of sweet straw and goat skins. I should have brought our son and the three of us slept curled together, he who was body of our bodies, us three a whole. But I was not entirely human that night and so could not dwell among my kind. Earth's snake was still in me. The old Pythia had warned me of this the night she gave the oracle to me, placing the laurel and the round bowl of water in my hands there in the deep adeton with the great python herself coiled between us. Your love belongs first to her now, and to her mother, the mountain, the stone, the earth, the one whose oldest name is Yi, she told me. It was true. I could not understand it until I made my first prophecy alone, until I became the snake, the earth, and the stone, until I saw as through their eyes. I was not myself, but only Pythia, she of the python, she of he, my skin no longer human, my womb no longer mother of my boy, but a limestone cavern filled with stars. I felt what it was to be a great serpent in those depths, the current of my body running sinuous through the dark, between fault lines, between mountains, between ages and seas, through underground springs, among the dead who carry all the seeds of earth in their gentle arms. In the sanctuary, on my tripod, I was snake and earth, and they were I, and thus I saw the round of things, the shedding skin, the beginning as the end, the end becomes seed. I knew every root of every plant and tree, the bones of every creature. I do not know what I looked like to human eyes when I entered that chamber of prophecy, but in my own eyes, my inner sight, I was the python herself, vast and scaled with eons on my tongue. That night, I saw horses in my vision, but did not know their names and thought them beautiful. I saw a great laurel tree outside the sanctuary where none had been before. I saw the mountain burning and thought it a warning of summer wildfire or the need for ash among our fields to feed the soil. But I also saw things I had no words for. Many men in strange clothing and dark chariots and a power around them that sucked at the very life force of the ground beneath their wheels a crushing hunger of need and force that made me real. And I saw at last the great python herself cut to pieces and buried beneath the holy stone, our umphalos. 
This was what broke my trance as nothing ever had. This was why I did not take the necessary steps, the slow unwinding of the sight, the careful coming down. I did not let my maidens feed me the grounding honey cakes, the cup of hearty wine, the second cup of goat's milk, the oil on my skin. Instead, I fled. I cast away my bowl of sacred water and it shattered. I dropped the bay leaves and they burned when they touched the ground, though there was no fire there. And the great python, who always went back down the chasm where earth breathed when it was over, she who would only ever show herself to the Pythia in a trance, she did not go away. She stayed all night, filling the entire sanctuary with her body, curled around the umphalos, breathing the words of Yi, which none could understand. My maidens hid that night, afraid of what it meant that the python had shown herself and that their Pythia had fled to the hills when there had been no warning of such a danger during the ritual water pouring over the black goat. I was mad with trance all night. I was full of earth, earth's fumes still. I was half snake. I could not lose my scales and remember my own name, for what I had seen, though inconceivable to me then, had still broken through, untranslated but clear in meaning nevertheless. I had seen terrible changes that wound not through single lifetimes, but through eons, through lineages, through all the centers of the world, and the horror of it near broke my mind. The loneliness of those eons, without the python, without the knowledge of her at the heart of every darkness. I plunged myself into the spring where we bathed to purify ourselves the sacred spring that comes out of the unseen, out of the stone in a little canyon gorge, where the oaks are young and green and the white clematis blooms. I plunged in raving. This sobered me a little, until I could sit still, high up, tangled in trees. There, I tried to sing myself clear, sing myself whole, so I might go down and warn my women, go down and hold my aristus. That I regret still, that I had no time to hold him or see him again, to be soothed by his warm hands on my back. But I had only strength enough for one single thing. As the trance at last faded and I descended with the dawn, to hide my women and my son with them. Most would not at first leave me or the sanctuary where the pythons still coiled, a terrible, unheard-of thing. She filled the shrine with the light on her scales by daybreak, the absolute endlessness of her name. I could not articulate to them what was coming, nor why the threat was so great. I didn't really understand myself. But Celine, my oldest love, she saw what could not be said in my eyes, and it was she who convinced the other women to go up the dreaming cave for the day. Then she took my boy and ran to the place where the bears go in winter, very high up in mountain caves where the wild thyme grows thick. I remember his skinny body in my arms when I said goodbye. I tried not to make him afraid with my fear. Aunt is taking you for your first bear hunt, I said to him. Capture a cub, and we will raise him together as your brother. Do right by his mother. Leave offerings and take care, my sweet, my wild kid. 
He smelled of warm barley, of honey, of his father. Celine kissed my mouth and took him, eager with his bow and his best obsidian tips that Aristus had helped him nap the month before. He grinned his eager grin, and it was the innocence of it that broke my fear to rage. So, when I heard hooves on the mountain path, I listened to them come with a hot clarity. I was as cleared as the earth after the magma, dispassionate in my rage. But when they crested the ridge and I saw their size, their beauty, their terrible potency, I understood more of the danger that had arrived and was afraid. I went to the python's side then and looked into one of her copper eyes, big as my own palm. I needed neither the earth's breath nor the laurel burning to hear her now. Her voice filled me, whole as ground. Run, daughter. No, I will not leave you. There is nowhere you could go that I would not find you if you called. Run now and save yourself. Then all I could see in my mind was a great laurel tree. It was enormous, ancient. Around it was Delphi, but unfamiliar. Not the simple stone sanctuary, our little terraced gardens, our olive trees, our well, our high-up caves, but something vast and white and shining, and many people in fine dress, and a city around the sanctuary, and tall white pillars like bone tree trunks holding up great roofs. It was sharp-edged, immaculate, dead even in its colors and in its noise. The sound of metal brought me back. My arms were around the python. I held her great head against my breast, big as a child. It was cool, smooth as water, without end. A man called out from the terraced garden. He had seen the, the coiled serpent within. I glimpsed his face out there in the light, though he could not see mine in the shadowed sanctuary, only the pythons gleaming in enormous form. The sun was on him, high overhead. He shone. This frightened and awed me both, until I saw he shone not from his own light, but from the pieces of fine metal he wore on his chest and forearms. He held out a very long, very thin, very sharp blade, not a knife, but something else entirely. With it held before him, he began to creep toward the sanctuary, waving his men back as if stalking a great beast on a hunt, and not a lone woman and a gentle, ancient serpent, both huddled over the center of the world. At last, when he was at the door and terror of the python for a moment paused him, I managed to gather myself together, to gather my wits, I stepped toward him. He had yet to notice me. Do you come seeking prophecy, my friend? I said, the proper welcome for a guest. What question is it that brings you to our door? My voice startled him and my form. I saw this in his eyes. I saw him take me in, saw my strangeness and my body as I had never seen myself, holy other, holy object, untethered from anything known my black hair that shone as the laurel leaves shine in sun, my skin very brown beneath the yellow of my robes, which were half torn from my night up the mountain, lined with earth, broken by thorn and damp, the earth still in me, 
in my eyes and my breath and my voice from that last trance. I was all that he was not, he of the shining metal and golden body. I saw myself as he saw me. I saw his desire. So you were the oracle then, he said with a little smile. He still held out his blade. He took another step forward. His eyes were hot, sliding everywhere across me. I wanted to run, but knew that in running I would give away what could belong to no one. I saw how badly this man wanted what belonged to no one. The earth's voice. The python. My body and my power too. I am, I said, standing taller, trying to muster all that was in me, only to find that in his eyes I was already his. I speak on behalf of the snake and of the earth. You are beautiful, priestess. I have never seen a woman so beautiful, so strong and pure of limb, so lithe. A serpent queen, a queen of stones, he said, slipping nearer, making his voice the tone of one trying to catch a goat for slaughter, hypnotic, droning on. I will make you so. I will make you mine. You will speak for me and not your snake. Let me show you. Let me show you how much better it will be. He reached right for my thighs with skilled fingers, but I leapt aside and clawed his face. In the same moment, the python reared up and struck him square on the shoulder. Only she truly knew how much we were about to lose. I will never forget that, the pure beauty of our python as she rose as high as the sanctuary roof, her eyes bright, her head a terrible molten planet, rearing, striking him so hard that he screamed and called for his men. Then there was no hope. They came running, all with long, sharp blades, and descended together upon the python doing what no one had dreamed to do for the unholy curse of it, a matricide of the worst degree. They cut the python to her death, into a thousand pieces that bled black across the stone floor. It was a frenzy, a murder. They said no words of prayer or remorse. Their eyes were red, their bodies bulged with what coursed through them, a kind of power I had never seen save in my vision. I recognized it then, huddled over the umfallow stone, over the center of the world, unable to move with what I witnessed. Then I understood, very brief but clear, how what I had seen might come of a power such as this. Black blood flooded the floor of the sanctuary. It covered my feet. The pieces of the python were no longer reptilian, but earth, great fragments of a fallen planet. The sanctuary reeked of underworlds, of the dead, of new soil. I saw only a single point of light right in front of me. My vision was otherwise tunneled. What I had believed eternal was destroyed. I lay inside that darkness, struggling to breathe. It was the voice of the one called Apollo that shook me out of my stupor his voice in his hands, taking hold of my arms, lifting me, running across my breasts. Now, he was saying, back to my offer. With a final, wild burst of trance and of power, I rallied. I wriggled free of his hands and fled him and his men with all my might, screaming Earth's name. My whole body was only one word, ye, a prayer for Earth to swallow me so I might never be captured by those hands. 
I was hardly a woman in that moment, mostly animal in flight. But I was woman enough the part that a part of me screamed mercy from the one I served. I ran, crushing laurel leaves from my robes and my fingers, offering them to the ground. Please, great one, swallow me. Please, change me, save me, I am yours. Apollo loved the chase. My body, fleeing, stirred him and quickened his pace. Once he almost caught me. His hands were on my waist. But already I was hardening. Myself and my body would not be his release. I was already bark and trunk. I saw with my eyes my long, dark legs turned to wood. I felt the roots in agony split open what had been my feet. But the pleasure of their rooting was more total than can be spoken. As if what had long branched in me as thoughts had turned downward and become material, traded thinking for soil, water, sugar, something filamental, essential, manifest, and no longer mental. I thought in radicals, then, in earth. My breasts filled the trunk with sap. My arms, reaching of their own volition upward, mirrored my feet, a searing that opened into branches, into waxy, dark green leaves. My own fragrance engulfed me, and I was no longer a woman, no longer Pythia, but the laurel tree. Daphne was my name when I was a woman. Daphne, my women called later, circling me where no laurel tree had been before, searching. It was Selene who recognized me, and Aristus who came every day until he was an old man, to touch my bark and speak to me, and after him, our son. That was long ago. I have not gone, though all the ones I knew have left. I am the laurel at the cavern's mouth, and my roots touch the spring water and the vent far below where the earth moves and steams. My roots go deeper yet, so deep they know the center of the world the old Pythia taught me of. There, in the far darkness, in the molten light, that is where our python went when Apollo and his men cut her to pieces and buried her under the Omphalos. That was also very long ago, and Earth's serpents take an eon, maybe two, to be reborn. But don't think for a moment that they can ever truly be killed. For at the tips of my roots, I have felt her stirring. Mm-hmm.